Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links and see where it takes us. So, John, what is your random article today? August, Osage Township, Bates County, Missouri. Hmm. Except, you know, it's not Osage County, so we don't actually uh, have an Oscar-winning film to, to be associated with this place. It's just a township in Bates County, Missouri. <laughs> Uh, population 1,837. So it's a record-breaking first town <laughs> for us here at the Wikipedia Chronicles for being, uh, you know, populated with more than zero people. Yeah. More than 25, even. Um, it's, uh, there's a town in it. There's one. It's called Rich Hill. Um... That's the only town in in the air, in 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 the township. Then there's also uh, the Schooly Airport. Yeah, yeah, that's all though. Wow, <laughs> that's all there is. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> there's the Rich Hill School District. There's it's part of the Missouri's fourth congressional district. I told you there were. I told you before we started recording that there were some places that this could go. <laughs> I didn't say there were there there were good places. As a matter of fact, they are in fact places. I have counties. I got mm. got townships. Um, yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, you, you gotta have something better, right? Well, I have list of invasive species in Australia. Ah, now we're on to something here. Okay. Yeah. What's uh what what we got on that list? Well, there's uh some plants, a uh, couple which uh one is called Tree of Heaven, although they also have the scientific names which will be fun to pronounce later. Aha, uh-huh, um, yes. there's alligator apple, apparently that's a plant name. Nice. Um let's see Foxtail brome, uh, rubber vine, hmm. and then there's animals. We got insects like the um, European wasp, pharaoh ant. Uh, got a bunch of got, uh, goldfish. Goldfish are on this species. Wait, what? Goldfish are invasive? All right, we're doing this. We're doing this <laughs> article now. Got rainbow trout. A house gecko, that's a thing that is invasive. Water buffalo. <laughs> a house sparrow. I didn't think <laughs> that people kept those in houses, but I stand corrected, I think, maybe? I guess. What's this here? There's a thing under the mammals called a, a chittle. What's a, what's a chittle? Chittle. Chittle. Hmm. Yep. And its scientific name is Axis Axis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what it's called. The Axis Axis. Hmm. 
Humans, we are an invasive species. Haha, <laughs> whoops. Did it to another one, another continent. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's, um... I mean, hmm. uh, well, I guess I was going to say, technically, wouldn't everything be an invasive species there, but there would have been some things. So, out of all of these things, what is the most... Interesting. Um. Well, there's this one thing up here too that I noticed. That is a plant called Echium plant aginium, but it's referred to colloquially as Patterson's curse. <laughs> to which there is a link. Wow, there's a link to both. There is. So it's a tricky, tricky thing. Because each goes to its own place. Hmm. One actually goes to an article called Patterson's Curse, and the other one calls to the goes to the article about the plant. Now, at the same time, there is uh, a fair amount of other interesting things here. We got Broom's Edge. I mean, Tree of Heaven sounded pretty cool. Um, Foxtail Brome. I don't know what that. I don't know what a brome is. <laughs> I mean, I know what a brome is, but I don't know what a brome <laughs> is. Um. Still though, the the curse the curse story really does pique my interest. I just want to know why there are two different links there. Yeah. And I want to know what's a, what is it a curse of? Who? What's the story behind this Patterson and his curse? Well, let let's go to Patterson's curse. Let's see what's going on with that curse. All right, Patterson's curse. Uh, and it takes us to the plant. It stays as the plant anyway. It's, it's dumb. <laughs> this is <this> was stupid. <laughs> we shouldn't have done this. <laughs> now I'm just going to do another podcast about plants. Now we got Echium plantigenium. It's not even the best plant. It has plant in the in the <laughs> scientific name. Like the, the, that's the scientific version of we give up. Well, maybe there's a something about the name. Hopefully. Yeah, I, I really hope so, because... can't just call it something Patterson's Curse and be like, that's it. It's its name now. <laughs> there has to be a story behind that. Yeah. Please, article, tell me. All right, well, I came here for a story. <laughs> let's start from the top. Um, it is... Commonly known as Purple Viper's Bug Loss, as um, well as Patterson's Curse. Okay. Which Patterson's Curse is even spelled wrong right there. Yeah, they, they had a T before. Now that T went away. There's only one T left. I don't know. And uh, it is a species native to Western and Southern Europe. And also Northern Africa and Southwestern Asia. And it's also been introduced to Australia, as we previously mentioned, and South Africa and the United States. Now, I feel like uh, going from North Africa to South Africa doesn't really count as invading. Because it's all it, one big it's thing. It's one big continent. And there's not really mountains in the middle or anything divided up. Like, yeah. I mean, like, if it was like a continental the, crossover, yeah. like... That would be one thing, but... There, it's all land. Yeah. <laughs> there's not even, like, great lakes. Or yeah. There's nothing. <laughs> there's, yeah. There's not a river going it's right across the continent. It's a lot of land. That's, yeah. that's all there is. Yeah. So, 
I, I have right. a trouble. I have trouble with that I, yeah. myself. Yes. Um. The other ones I sort of get though. Yeah. Though, I mean, Europe to Asia is also technically not. I mean, there's at least mountains there. Yeah. There's a bunch of mountains and like some deserts, that kind of thing in between the two. So that makes sense. But whatever. Um. <laughs> Due to a high concentration of alkaloids, it is poisonous to grazing livestock, especially those with simple digestive systems like horses. Hmm. The toxins are cumulative in the liver, and death results from too much Patterson's curse in the diet. <laughs> Another one T. Yeah, that, I guess in some so, countries they just don't double T the Patterson. It has to be. Yeah. But who is Patterson? Tell us. I'll tell you what. The plant is a winter annual plant growing from 20 to 60 centimeters tall with rough hairy leaves up to 14 <laughs> centimeters long <laughs> the flowers are purple 15 to 20 millimeters long does it resemble patterson maybe he has rough hairy arms or something i'll tell you something uh invasive species it's become an invasive species in australia where it is also known as Salvation Jane. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. You said it was a curse. Now it's salvation? Hmm. Is Jane... Well, salvation for Jane. But, but maybe that screws Patterson over. It could. We don't know. But what if Jane and Patterson are the same person? Patterson's like a last name. Like Jane Patterson? Jane Patterson. <laughs> yeah. What if it's Salvation Jane Patterson's curse? <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's her name. Maybe her name salvation is Jane. Salvation Jane. But then she got cursed. By Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it's apparently also named Blueweed, Lady Campbell Weed, and Riverina Bluebell in Australia. Hmm. So in the United States, it's uh, it's not anywhere near as named. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all over California and Oregon, some eastern states, and some places in Michigan. In Oregon, they even went so far as to declare it a noxious weed. Hmm. To which noxious. there is a link. Noxious. Not obnoxious. Yeah, just, just noxious. Just noxious. <laughs> it's, it's not too bad, but, it, you know, it's, bad it's getting there. Uh, yeah, but in a study funded by the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, the seeds were found to lower triglycerides. Citation needed. <laughs> Researchers at Wake Forest University and Harvard Center for Botanical Lipids fed mice a diet supplemented with echium oil and found that it had effects similar to fish oil in lowering triglyceride levels and in blood plasma and the liver. So that one has a citation. So we at least know that it did, you know, there was a study that showed it lowered triglyceride levels. Right. But do we know? Does it show anywhere that you see that about it being the patter the curse of Patterson? Um, Echium oils high levels of blah, 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 blah. Uh -huh. toxicity, poisonous, uh, eaten in large quantities, livestock weight and death. Okay, yeah. They Patterson's don't. kill curse can kill horses. Is it Patterson a horse? Um. Yes. After the 2003 Canberra brush fires, a large bloom of plant occurred on the burned land. Many horses died. So is Patterson a horse? Um, Patterson owned horses. 
Patterson really like voices. Alcoholoids can be found in the nectar of Patterson's Curse. And honey made from it should be blended with other honeys to dilute the toxins. Why do they make this? It seems dumb. Um, what, what's going on? So, yep. Yeah, nope. Nothing. Nothing about Patterson. Ooh, okay. All right. All right. So, up at the top, the there is an album called Salvation Jane. They're like a... Somebody wrote it, a music album a music called album. Salvation Jane. Yeah. So maybe there is a chance that we could possibly find out something about the origins of the name by going there. Because I don't All right. foresee us getting anywhere with any of the other links in this as far as... Yeah, I don't think you're wrong about that. Let's go ahead and bounce to Salvation Jane album. Okay. Okay, so it's from a New Zealand singer, Jenny Morris. Oh, hey, look at that. Told us us all we need to know. Salvation Jane is one of several names by which the flowering plant Echium plantagium is known in Australia. How about that? That's it. That's a whole whole explanation that we're going to uh, get. Right. <laughs> so I guess we're just going to have to let that one go. Um, I think we are in too deep. Yep. It's the name of the song. That's actually, yeah. <laughs> Written by Arnold's. Hmm. That is the one song on this album that has a link. It's the single. Yep. I don't know who Jenny Morris is, but she's the singer who made the album. In July 1995. Well, this album peaked all the way at number 70 upon its debut on the Australian charts. Oh, number 70 on the Australian <laughs> charts. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, that's up she's there. She's going places. She's got, un- she's got some ability. <laughs> man. Oh, man. I'd be curious to know what this landed on the worldwide charts. I'm going to go ahead and use my powers of Spotify to find this thing. Jenny Morris still cranking them out. But this album is, in fact, not available. Oh, too obscure for Spotify. All of her her most well-played song has 24,000 plays. However... Most seem to have 2,000 or fewer. Hmm. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have any access to any of the songs from this particular album. Let's see. Does YouTube So I'm just curious now about how, how it sounds. How does it be? The song in too deep. Oh, there we go. It has a solid. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Copyright purposes, that's all we can play. <laughs> um, 
that song is very 1995. Yeah, the music video and everything. It's just everybody has grunge hairstyles and grunge clothes styles. And there's grunge video projection style to it. Yeah. I mean, it's um, a little, little more poppy, but not, not by much. It very much reminds me of um, Alanis Morissette. Yeah, based actually, on that small snippet, she also looks and sounds much like her. So <laughs> yeah, uh, let's see. So Jenny Morris is a New Zealand singer. The album featured songs from a songwriting retreat held at Miles Copeland's castle, <laughs> uh, Chateau de Marouat in Bordeaux, France. Uh, here, Morris co-wrote a number of songs with other international songwriters, including Judd Friedman, Whit- Rich Wayland, Mark Cawley, and Dennis Greaves. Hmm. So, this girl was just a front for these like five dudes to get together in a castle and be like, <laughs> make some music, yeah. Or make some girl like go sing it and put it out for us, yeah. Okay, let's do that. Can we get a can we get a Miles Copeland? I want to see if they tell us about his castle. Let's go to Miles Copeland. Okay, cool. Miles Copeland three. Yeah. It's the best one. It's one where <laughs> Luke confronts his father. <laughs> so this is an American entertainment executive. Ooh, his name is Miles Axe Copeland. That's that just is, so good. Yeah. He founded IRS Records. Creative. So we avoid taxes. His brother Stuart Copeland was part of the pop rock trio The Police, which Miles managed. Ah, so he's a manager type. Gotcha. Yeah. So he was born in London, though, um, mm. to Miles Axe Copeland Jr., who was a CIA officer from Birmingham, Alabama. Whoa. And Scottish Lorraine Addy, who was a in British atel- intelligence. Wow, so Wow. Secret Asian baby. <laughs> international CIA uh intelligence agents mingling. Yep. That's awesome. That's actually really cool. Scottish secret agents. <laughs> and Brit and American Alabamese secret agents getting busy. <laughs> two to Miles Jr.'s profession, the family moved throughout the Middle East, in particular Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon. <laughs> As a result, Miles and his brothers became fluent in Arabic. Interesting. Yeah. So he went to Birmingham Southern College in 1962. Got a BA. Um, not like he needs it, right? <laughs> not with those parents. <laughs> not that upbringing. Um... But he earned an MA in economics. Not like he needs it, right? Because you know, he has a ma. <laughs> he has a ma. He's got a ma. And, uh, but by then he had already promoted his first concert. Then he moved back to England, got involved in music. And um, 1974 founded the management agency and record label BTM, or British Talent Management. Hmm. And then signed progressive rock bands like Renaissance and Curved Air 
which I do not know anything about. No. Then he organized a multi-band tour in uh, Europe, uh, which was a festival called Star Trucking, which featured several BTM bands, as well as Soft Machine and Mahavishnu Orchestra and Lou Reed. But then uh, Reed's failure to appear at any of the shows and a litany of logistical issues resulted in significant losses. And then a year later, BTM closed down. Oh, no. The failure of BTM coincided with the beginnings of the new punk wave movement hmm. uh, and new wave movement in the United Kingdom and led our good friend Miles Copeland III to start uh, Illegal Records, <laughs> Deptford Fun City Records, New Bristol Records, and sign the Cortinas... Chelsea band and the models to step forward records in 1977. So he started three different record labels but signed two bands or three bands to a record label that he did not start. So it would seem hmm. interesting strategy. <laughs> and then a year later. He became the manager of his brother's band, Police. Which, uh, yeah. Good move on his part. Not only a good move on his part, but a good move on the police's part. He was the guy under which the police became famous mm. in the 1980s. Yeah. And um, he then he founded IRS Records. Another one. Uh-huh. Need one more. <laughs> Gotta have one more in the bank. And then, um, the next few years, his company had hits with the Buzzcocks, the English Beat, the Cramps, Fine Young Cannibals, mm. Wall of Voodoo, Tri- Timbuk 3, How you get it? REM, The Alarm, and then a number of, a number one album with the all group, The Go-Go's. Mm. And then he continued to manage Sting's solo career. And introduced Sting to Algerian Rai singer, Ray singer, Sheb Mami, in 1999. So. Their collaboration bloomed <laughs> with Desert Rose. <laughs> he currently owns and operates CIA, Copeland <laughs> International Arts. Clever boy. I feel oh like boy. he uh, really is into his governmental agency. <laughs> <He> really is. <laughs> <laughs> the artist roster of which includes Belly Dance Superstars, which I don't know if that's a band anymore. Yeah. Uh, Celtic Crossroads, Ortos Aries, Zohar, <laughs> Beats Antique. And many more internationally recognized acts. Much of the CIA label focus was initially aimed at the most creative genres in the world of dance, including an extensive catalog of Middle Eastern, East-West fusion music, and a growing catalog of Irish, Tango, Flamenco, and Polynesian styles. But the label has since progressed to signing artists that appeal to the general public. Hmm. I.e. make money. 
Yeah, and he married Adriana Corajorio, who was an artist and model from Argentina in 1989. And they had three children, Miles Axe Four, Asan Armstrong, and Axton Emerson. Yeah, they have some really cool names, <laughs> these people. Yeah. Seriously. They know what's going on. See also... Arc 21 and Belly Dance Superstars. (laughs) Really, really pushing the Belly Dance Superstars, aren't they? Yeah. Hmm. Well, where to go? Mildly interested in um, Miles Copeland Jr. See what. Yeah, because he was a secret agent dad. Yeah. Secret agent dad. Yeah, you know what? Let's do that. Let's go to him. Right, let's, let's just see what he had. Climb up the ladder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Climb up right up into that family tree. Oh, he was also a musician. But a secret agent musician. Yep. <laughs> the best kind. Miles Axe Copeland Jr. was an American musician, business man, and CIA officer who was closely involved in major foreign policy operations from the 1950s to the 1980s. Oh, man, he was uh, working pretty far into his uh, into his life. Yeah. So he only he died in 1991. So still going strong. Um. So he was born in Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama, as we mentioned before, and he's the son of a doctor. He did not graduate from college, but I think that seemed to turn out all right. Probably. Uh, He became a trumpet player with band leaders such as Ray Noble and Glenn Miller. And he was an arranger and trumpet player for the Glenn Miller Orchestra. And then he married an archaeologist, Lorraine Copeland, which I'm sure that was her name after... Married. Right, Lorraine yeah. Addy was her Scottish yes. agent name thing. And uh, then it goes on to tell you about his son, Miles III. And uh, he was also father to booking agent Ian Copeland. I don't know what a booking agent is. <laughs> but uh, he also fathered writer, film producer Lorraine Copeland. So... Do women have juniors? Mm. Like, do they do junior stuff? No, they do different first names. Because, like, uh... Because this one's Lenny. Uh. Like, you remember Gilmore Girls? Ah, uh, yeah. Like, one was Rory, one was Lorelai. Right. They were both Lorelai. Hmm. They don't do juniors. They do weird variations <laughs> on the first name. They do the same name, but then they change it and... Change it a little bit. Speak it around. Name. Yeah, that's what they do. I don't understand I've, yeah, I've never, how that tradition came to be. Like, I guess, why can't I guess you be... I, I hear about, like, Elizabeth II or whatever, but there's never a junior Liter- or a senior. Right. Literally only within Regency do, yeah. <laughs> are there first, second, and third figures. Yeah, outside of Regency, I've never come across any... I don't see why not. Somebody should get on that. Yeah. Somebody... Make, it, make a Jenny Jr., I mean, maybe women are smart enough to be like, you know, most of the time when you name name the kid the same thing like three times in a row, Ooh. nothing good happens. But Actually, well, like these guys, may- maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't make sense, but 
I'm thinking maybe it's because of women changing their name after they get married that uh, kind of nullifies the whole, you know, passing right. on the name thing but because they weren't born with that last name. Yeah, and I get that. But I mean, like, as we still. progress into modernity, there is a potential for a woman to keep her last name in a mm. marriage situation. So, I don't know. Why not? Yeah. And even Give if them, you do change it, why not? Yeah, yeah, I would say I would say depending on what you're intending, like if you're planning on having kids, mm-hmm. depending on what you're thinking about your first name options are, you may want to keep both names in the mix mm-hmm. once you get married anyway, because one may allow you to have cooler name potentials. Yeah, that's I think it's true. all about the combinations. <laughs> okay, so at the outbreak of World War II, Copeland joined the National Guard and contacted Representative John Sparkman of Alabama, who arranged a meeting with William Wild Bill. Donovan. The two hit it off immediately, but Copeland nonetheless was not recruited to Donovan's Office of Strategic Services and instead joined the Corps of Intelligence Police, which became the Counterintelligence Corps in January 1942. Copeland was stationed in London and reportedly gained the top secret bigot clearance (laughs) and took part in discussions about Operation Overlord. After the conversion of the OSS into the Strategic Services Unit on October 1st, 1945, Copeland joined what would become part of the CIA. Hmm. Serving in London, he became a lifelong Anglophile and married Lorraine Addy, a Scot he had met during the war when she was serving in the Special Operations Executive. Dead link. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh. So he got in on the CIA before it was the CIA. He got in on the ground floor of the CIA. That was a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good place to land a gig. Yeah. I'm interested into what that bigot clearance is. It sounds like a pretty, pretty high up there clearance to be a bigot. Operation Overlord. That sounds interesting. I remember that being a major part of World War II. I forget what exactly that was. Was that? The plan was that the plan for D Day? Hmm, that could be. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Cool. So, this guy, who was the dad of some dude from the police, <laughs> <laughs> helped figure out how to do a D Day. Yeah. Cool. And was involved in the founding of the CIA. Not bad for a college dropout. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, I'd say it, it all went well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, among Copeland's first postings was Damascus, Syria, in September 1947, beginning a long career in the Middle East. Together with Stephen Mead, he played a role in supporting the 1949 Syrian coup d'etat, working closely with Archibald Roosevelt, son of Theodore, wow. I.e. Didn't know, I didn't Teddy. No, uh, he had kids. Oh, I yeah. I mean, I would have assumed, but... Oh, no, no, no. The Roosevelt family is big and powerful and full of po- polio, apparently. Look at that. That guy <laughs> has a cane and everything. And, um, anyway, um, also his nephew, Kermit Roosevelt Jr., was involved in this, and... Uh, Miles was instrumental in arranging Operation Ajax. What? Nice. The 1953 technical coup d'etat against the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Masegda. <laughs> what? 
Hmm. Wow. This guy was this guy was a player. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, and then uh, he returned to private life in 1953 at the consulting firm Booz Allen Hamilton, and he That's remained a non-official cover operative for the CIA. And he traveled to Cairo to meet Gamal Abdel Nasir, who had overthrown King Farouk and taken power in Egypt. Uh, advising Nasir Nasser on the development of the Mukabarat and becoming Nasser's closest Western advisor. In this role, he offered U.S. economic development and technical military assistance. At the time, U.S. considered regional instability adverse to U.S. interests. The new post-war era witnessed an intensive involvement of the United States in the political and economic affairs of the Middle East, in contrast to the hands-off attitude characteristic of the pre-war period. The United States had to face and define its policy in all three sectors and provided the root causes of the American interests in the region, the Soviet threat, the birth of Israel, and petroleum. I didn't realize that we've been uh, messing around in the Middle East so long. I didn't. I knew we were. We have been for a while, but I didn't realize just how much. <laughs> and I'm shocked how much this one dude, who was a trumpet player who dropped out of college, <laughs> and just kind of was like he just kind of wandered into this because he went to, uh, a meeting with yeah. a representative from <laughs> Alabama. Ended up like this is some Middle Year Solid stuff right here. Yes, yeah, like, this is some crazy like this this guy this this guy in Alabama doesn't go to school but he's in the national guard not even the army yeah <laughs> the homeland one the one yeah. that doesn't go anywhere and meets with a congr congressional guy one time one time <laughs> and ends up killing off world leaders in syria and he's the advisor to like other rising uh political leaders who he definitely in no way did not help overthrow their predecessors. <laughs> wow. Uh, so in 1955, Copeland comes out of retirement, returns to the CIA during the Suez Crisis. Oh, no, I see where this is going. Uh, in which the United States blocked the collusion of France, the United Kingdom, and Israel to invade the U.S.-backed Egypt's independence and control of the Suez Canal. The move is said to have been advocated by Copeland with the goal of ending British control of the region's oil resources and forestalling the influence of the Soviet Union on regional governments by placing the United States behind their legitimate national interests. After the crisis, Nasser nevertheless moved closer to the, United, to the USSR and accepted massive military technology and engineering assistance on the Aswan Dam. Copeland, allied with John and Alan Dulles, worked to reverse this trend at the time, which included Copeland's involvement in schemes to assassinate Nasser. Here he goes! <laughs> He's back at it! Hey, guy, how you doing? I'd like to advise you and give you good tips and stuff. You've All right, time to assassinate him. <laughs> <laughs> time to get rid of him. Get out of here. In 1958, Syria merged with Egypt in the United Arab Republic, and King Faisal II was deposed by Iraqi nationalists. 
Copeland opposed major paramilitary CIA operations such as the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba in 1961 on the grounds that they were impossible to keep secret due to size. From 1957 to 1958, Copeland was stationed with his family in Beirut, where his children grew up attending the American Community School. And not too long after that, there would be a little bit of a civil war there. <laughs> Coincidence? I don't know about that. <laughs> this guy Man. seems pretty shady. Yeah. I feel like they need to make a video game out of this guy. I think they already did. I think it's called Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> Maybe they just need to make more Metal Gear Solids that are... About him. About him. Because, hey, they've uh, jumped to different characters. Yeah, might as well. But after his retirement from the CIA, he wrote foreign policy books and an autobiography and articles for publications, including the National Review. He was active in 1970s political efforts to defend the CIA against critics, including the Church Committee. And in 1988, Copeland wrote an article titled Spooks for Bush. Um... (laughs) Which asserted that the intelligence community overwhelmingly supported George H.W. Bush for U.S. president. Okay, so it's spooks as in CIA operatives. Right, not as in the other one. Right. <laughs> the the non-insensitive one. Right, right. The one the one that means people who work for CIA. The one, yeah, the people yeah. who are spooky because yes. they do secret Because things. of intelligence reasons. <laughs> because they work for the government. Yes. Because they work in the CIA and the government. Yes. <laughs> um, Bush had run the CIA during the 1970s under Gerald Ford. I did not know that. Hmm. Uh, in the introduction to his book, Enemy Within, Guardian journalist Sumas Milne wrote that in the spring of 1990, Copeland warned British miners' union leaders Arthur Scargill and Peter Heathfield that the CIA and MI5 had been involved in kickstarting a media campaign against them and helped to frame corrupt allegations against them. Huh. I didn't know Kickstarter was a thing back then. <laughs> uh, also in retirement, he created the board game Game of Nations. Wait, what? Really? <laughs> so that's okay. a thing I have to check out now. Yep. I've seen that around. I didn't know that this guy who literally just was like, you know what? I'm a CIA operative, but I'm going to change the world. <laughs> like, this guy right here, this innocent-looking old old dude, these Woody Allen-looking glasses, <laughs> literally just went around assassinating people. Major world leaders. Okay. Cool. And his son was in a band called The Police. And his other son started record labels called CIA. <laughs> If he if his dad could start the CIA, so could his son. <laughs> sort of. Does Game of Nations have a link? No. Yeah. Well, it's not like this article is devoid of interesting things. But yeah, the Game of Nations. Wow, this is literally like a game simulating Middle East stuff. That it conflicts up there. Is that a print? Should be relatively. I think it's a relatively common game. I'm pretty sure. I just know I've seen it around somewhere. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Seem to find it. Hmm. All right. So where to go from here? Hmm. 
there's a lot of good stuff about the various like operations and mm. things that we could go into. But we could also go further into the CIA itself. Mm. True. If we dare risk it. Check out the CIA. See what's going on. All right. See. Check it out. How it came to be. Central Intelligence Agency. A civilian foreign intelligence service of the U.S. government. What does that mean exactly? Um, it's made up of people who live here. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's not made up of people who were born and bred within the government. I don't know what the other alternative <laughs> would be. Because, like, when I first read that, I was like, oh, is it, like, a private, non-government thing? But then it said of the U.S. government, so... Well, I also know that there's things, like, that the CIA works on. That Things like uh, one common resource I used was the CIA World Factbook, and that hmm. is a compilation of various figures on, like... Socioeconomic trends, population, uh, GDP, land masses, that kind of thing for various nations in the world. And it's kept up to date by the CIA pretty much all the time. So things like that, maybe that's what it means. It's like it provides, it it does have its secret limbs and operations, Mm -hmm. yes, but it also does provide information to civilian populace of the United States. Okay. So, yeah, basically the CIA gathers um, national security information from around the world. Through the use of human intelligence, or HUMINT, as one of the principal members of the U.S. intelligence community, CIA reports to the Director of National Intelligence and is primarily focused on providing intelligence for the President and his cabinet. Unlike the FBI, which is a domestic security service, CIA has no law enforcement function. And is mainly focused on overseas intelligence gathering with only limited domestic collection. Though it is not the only U.S. government specializing in human, CIA serves as the national manager for coordination and deconfliction of human activities across the entire intelligence community. Moreover, the CIA is the only agency authorized by law to carry out oversee covert action on behalf of the president unless the president determines that another agency is better suited for carrying out such action. It can, for example, exert foreign political influence through its tactical divisions, such as the Special Activities Division. (laughs) Can you see the... CIA is going out there, and mm-hmm. the FBI is looking in here. Mm-hmm. Um, before the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, CIA director concurrently served as the head of the intelligence community. Today, these functions and authorities reside with the director of national intelligence. Despite transferring some of its powers to the DNI, the CIA has grown in size as a result of the September 11th terrorist attacks. In 2013, the Washington Post reported that in fiscal year 2010, 
The CIA had the largest budget of all IC agencies, exceeding previous estimates. And it's been expanding its roles, including paramilitary operations. Um, and one of its largest divisions, the Information Operations Center, the IOC, has shifted from counterterrorism to cyber operations. And they've had some recent accomplishments, such as locating Osama bin Laden and taking part in Operation Neptune Spear. And it's also been involved in controversial programs, such as Extraordinary Rendition and Enhanced Interrogation Techniques. Uh-huh. Does that mean torture? <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> Great. Um, I think that's the pretty name for it, you know. Yeah. Purpose. When the CIA was created, its purpose was to create a clearinghouse for foreign policy, intelligence, and analysis. Today, its primary purpose is to collect, analyze, evaluate, and disseminate foreign intelligence and to perform covert actions. So it's really broadened its powers quite a bit mm. over the years. According to its 2013 fiscal budget, the CIA has five priorities bullet-pointed as follows. One, counterterrorism, the top priority, given the ongoing war on terror. Two, non-proliferation of nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction, with North Korea described as perhaps the most difficult target. Three, warning slash informing American leaders of an important overseas event, with Pakistan described as an intractable target. Uh, that was the year of the killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, so just throwing that out there. That's why Pakistan's <laughs> on that list. Four, counterintelligence with China, Russia, Iran, Cuba, and Israel described as priority targets. Wait, really? Israel? <laughs> what did it... I thought we made them. <laughs> Didn't... Don't we want them to be... Um... I mean, the other ones I sort of get, but Israel... <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't seem like, like uh, any kind of a threat or anything. They're not coming after us. They're yeah. doing their own thing now. Okay, and five is uh, cyber intelligence. So they do have a structure. They have the um, five major directorates. There's the Directorate of Digital Innovation, the Directorate of Analysis, Directorate of Operations, Directorate of Support, and Directorate of Science and Technology. And the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, or the D-CIA, reports directly to the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI. And so, in practice, the Director deals with the DNI, Congress, and the White House, while the Deputy Director is the Internal Executive. And the executive office also supports the U.S. military by providing it with information it gathers. Um, and they cooperate in field activities. And the executive director is in charge of the day-to-day -day operation of the CIA. And each branch of the service has its own director. The associate director of military affairs, a senior military officer, manages the relationship between the CIA and the Unified Combatant Commands, who produce regional operational intelligence and consume national intelligence. 
There's also the Directorates of Analysis, the Directorate of Operations, Directorate of Science and Technology, and the Directorate of Support, which is consisted of the Office of Security, Office of Communications, and Office of Information Technology. So that's your basic office infrastructure right there. Training. The CIA established its first training facility, the Office of Training and Education, in 1950. Following the end of the Cold War, the CIA's training budget was slashed, which had a negative effect on employee retention. In response, Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet established CIA University in 2002. The university holds between 200 and 300 courses each year, training both new hires and... And experienced intelligence officers, as well as CIA import, uh, support staff. The facility works in partnership with the National Intelligence University and includes the Sherman Kent School for Intelligence Analysis and the Directorate of Analysis's component of the university. Uh, one interesting thing here, Robert Baer, a CNN analyst and former CIA operative stated that normally a CIA employee undergoes a polygraph examination every three to four years. I guess that's despite the fact that they've kind of found out that polygraphs, polygraphs don't <laughs> and are just to scare you into thinking that they work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they don't really uh, they're not too accurate. No. <laughs> Besides, if you work for the CIA, you better be able to pull up against a polygraph <laughs> yeah, test, that, right? Yeah, that's the problem. Like, like, that's <laughs> uh, maybe they're like, okay, if you're bad enough that you can't get past a... Then you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you can't keep your cool when we who employ you and aren't against you in any way, shape, or form hook you up to this thing, and this thing isn't that good to begin with, <laughs> you really shouldn't work here. <laughs> like, that's a bad idea for us. Yeah. As far as the budget's concerned... We talked about five bullet points that it takes on already. But details of the overall budget are, of course, for obvious reasons, classified. <laughs> Under the Central Intelligence Agency Act of 1949, the Director of Central Intelligence is the only federal government employee who can spend unvouchered government money. Hmm. The government has disclosed a total figure for all non-military intelligence spending since 2007. The fiscal 2013 figure is $52.6 billion. According to the 2013 mass surveillance disclosures, the CIA's fiscal budget is $14.7 billion, 28% of the total, and almost 50% more than the budget of the National Security Agency. CIA's human budget is $2.3 billion. The SIGINT budget is $1.7 billion. And spending for security and logistics of CIA missions is $2.5 billion. Covert actions programs, including a variety of activities such as the CIA's drone fleet and anti-Iranian nuclear program activities, also accounts for $2.6 billion. It's a big price tag Yeah. for a country that is probably just making power plants. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that led to creating the CIA was the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
which makes sense because they kind of wanted a way to prevent things like that. Um, but it was started on July 26th, 1947, um, when Harry S. Truman signed the National Security Act into law. So yeah, they, uh, kind of, it started out, uh, with Franklin Roosevelt, um, he authorized the creation of a, uh, an intelligence service modeled after MI6, and, uh, yeah, so this led to the Office of Strategic Services, which, as you, as we mentioned before, is where um, that Miles was working before it became the CIA. And then after World War II, uh, Truman signed the executive order dissolving the OSS, and its functions got divided up. And the division lasted only a few months, and then the first public mention of the CIA appeared on a command restructuring proposal presented by Jim Forrestal and Arthur Radford to the U.S. Senate Military Affairs Committee at the end of 1945. And then, uh, despite opposition from the military establishment, the United States Department of State and the FBI... Truman established the National Intelligence Authority in January 1946, which was the direct predecessor of the CIA, and its operational extension was known as the Central Intelligence Group, the CIG. SIG. SIG. Send those SIGs out. Send those spooks. Send those SIGs. (laughs) Oh, wow. Terrible names. (laughs) Lawrence Houston, head counsel of the SSU, SIG, and later CIA, was a principal draftsman of the National Security Act of 1947, which dissolved the NIA and the CIG, and then established (laughs) both the National Security Council and the Central Intelligence Agency. In 1949, Houston would help draft the Central Intelligence Agency Act, which authorized the agency to use confidential fiscal and administrative procedures and exempted it from most limitations on the use of federal funds. It also exempted the CIA from having to disclose its organization, functions, officials, titles, salaries, or number of personnel employed. It created the program PL-110, to handle defectors and other essential aliens who fell outside normal immigration procedures. Shady dealings. Yeah. So, on the outset of the Korean War, the CIA still only had a few thousand employees, 1,000 of which worked in analysis. And intelligence primarily came from the Office of Reports and Estimates which drew its reports from a daily take of State Department telegrams, military dispatches, and other public documents. CIA still lacked its own intelligence-gathering abilities. Then, on August 21, 1950, shortly after the invasion of South Korea, 
Truman announced Walter Bettel Smith as the new director of CIA to correct what was seen as a grave failure of intelligence. The CIA had different demands placed on it by the different bodies overseeing it. Truman wanted a centralized group to organize the information that reached him. The Department of Defense wanted military intelligence and covert action. And the State Department wanted to create global political change favorable to the United States. Thus, the two areas of responsibility for the CIA were covert action and covert intelligence. One of the main targets for intelligence gathering was the Soviet Union, which had also been a priority of the CIA's predecessors. So, yeah, the early track record of CIA was poor, and uh, the agency was unable to provide sufficient intelligence about the Soviet takeovers of Romania and Czechoslovakia, uh, the Sov- Soviet blockade of Berlin, and the Soviet atomic bomb project. Oh my God. <laughs> In particular, the agency failed to predict the Chinese entry into the Korean War with 300,000 troops. You missed 300,000 <laughs> troops? Oh, my God. The famous double agent Kim Philby was the British liaison to American Central Intelligence. Through him, the CIA coordinated hundreds of airdrops inside the Iron Curtain, all compromised by Philby. (laughs) Arlington Hall, the nerve center of CIA cryptoanalysis, was comprised of Bill Weisband, a Russian translator and Soviet spy. The CIA would reuse the tactic of dropping plant agents behind enemy lines by parachute again on China and North Korea. This, too, would be fruitless. It's amazing how quickly the reputation rebounded, <laughs> uh, considering how much and how catastrophically <laughs> they messed up at the beginning of their uh, tenure as an agency. Yeah. But uh, they were learning. However, it says the CAA was successful, finally, <laughs> in influencing the 1948 Italian election in favor of the Christian Democrats. Huh. The $200 million Exchange Stabilization Fund earmarked for the reconstruction of Europe was used to pay wealthy Americans of Italian heritage. Cash was then distributed to Catholic Action, the Vatican's political arm, and directly to Italian politicians. This tactic of using its large fund to purchase elections was frequently repeated in the subsequent years. Literally just buying people that they want to win. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to do it. Yep. And, uh, yeah, there is a lot more to learn about the CIA. Um, and we're just getting into the events now. Most of the ones that were actually successful and influential in the world, so I do encourage you to take a second and look at all the reasons why we do now (laughs) fear the CIA because there are paragraphs upon paragraphs that we haven't even begun to touch upon Mm -hmm. that explain exactly why. (laughs) Yep, there are a lot. Um, We've barely scratched the surface here, but... It is important, I think, to remember the humble beginnings of them. Yeah. How not long they've been around. Yeah. For how, like, imposing they seem to be. They're not that old, and they've only just recently figured out what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure in no small part to Miles. No, indeed. It seems like he's responsible for the first 40 or so paragraphs that they have <laughs> things that they would go on to do. Yeah. 
So there you have it from list of invasive species in Australia to Central Intelligence Agency. Um, so go ahead to Facebook and give us a like and follow and head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can also find new episodes on our website, twc.ericturibu.com, as well as any podcast app out there. And I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Paul Whiteman Orchestra for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy all the places. Literally, I think every country in the world and then every president since yep. had their own. <laughs>